Tonight we're beginning 1 John, and it is so good. Are you ready for some good stuff tonight, some good manna? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your blessing on the house of God, your blessing on the people of God. Now, Lord, we know we're approaching the sacred word. We know this is the word of God. So we pray, Lord, as we now delve into it and journey through 1 John, that you will open our eyes, open our hearts, open our ears to hear, and give us ears to hear, Lord, what the Lord is saying. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Will you pray and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive the word of God as the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good. Perk up and listen. I know some of you have had a long day. How many of you had a long day? How many of you, tell the truth, the devil fought you about coming here tonight? Tell the truth. Yeah, and you came anyway, right? That's right. Good, because it's going to be worth it. Now, First John, I, how many of you, uh, like if I say First John 1, 9, you know what that is. If we confess our sins. See, there's a lot of little great uh, uh, special verses that we pull out of First John, but First John is a powerful letter. And I, I want to give you a little background into it before I actually start breaking down some of the verses. We're going to get through chapter 1 tonight. But, but I want to give you some history, uh, just a little bit of context so you can understand uh, what John was dealing with. Because, you know, when the apostles, James, John, Jude, Peter, Paul, when they wrote letters, they had reasons Now, the letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But they they, they were prodded by something. They they had reasons for writing what they wrote. And, And so does John in this first letter. So let me just talk to you about it. When John wrote this first letter, he was an old man. He was feeling the weight of his years, and he was aware that his days on earth we're coming to a close, just like Peter was in Second Peter, and just like Paul knew in Second Timothy. They, they knew when their time was coming to a close. John's native land was far away in the land of Israel, uh, and he now lived in Ephesus, a pagan city containing a church uh, to which the Apostle Paul addressed his famous letter to the Ephesians. So when John writes this, he's in Ephesus. Now, John was born in Bethsaida, and that was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. He had been one of a family of four. How many firstborns do we have in here? If you're a firstborn. How many secondborn? How many thirdborn? You're still being picked on. All right, there we go. All right, now, John was one of a family of four. His father was a well-to-do fisherman. His mother, Salome, was sister to the Virgin Mary. His brother James was the first apostle to be martyred. Remember that? Herod killed him with the sword. So his brother James was the first martyr of the Christian church, first apostle to be martyred, first apostle to be martyred. The first martyr was Stephen. Now, John was one of the first two disciples called by Jesus. And along with James and Peter, he enjoyed the privilege of being in Jesus' inner three. Remember how often Jesus would take Peter, James, and John, and take them off somewhere when he left the rest standing there. I often wondered how that went over. How'd that go over? When he took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, hey, 
Peter, James, and John, come on. Now, there's the rest of them standing. They're like, what, we can't go too? But that happened all the time. Jesus had his three, then he had his 12, then he had his 70 that he sent out. Amen? Now, uh, we're also told that John was called the beloved disciple. It could be, of course, who can measure love? But it could be that he loved the Lord, had a closer relationship with the Lord than any of the other apostles. Uh, Why else would he be called the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved? It seemed like John and Jesus connected um, very strongly. And so he's the, the beloved disciple. Now, by nature, and I like this about John, he had a fiery disposition. Anybody in here have one of those? I do. I'm passionate about almost anything I get into. I'm passionate, all right? So John had a fiery disposition. And the Lord gave him a nickname, Son of Thunder. Here comes the Son of Thunder. How many of you would like to be called that? Here comes the Daughter of Thunder. Here comes the Son of Thunder. Well, you know, I can think of worse things, but anyway, that's why he named him that, because he was so passionate. He was intense, this disciple, John. But by now, in his old age, he has greatly mellowed, which older age has a way of doing. Now... We will see in this series that John writes in terms of black and white with no tones of gray. Uh, Everything is true or false, good or bad, right or wrong, light or dark, love or hate, life or death. There was no in-between. There was no fence in John's writing or in John's theology. I happen to believe that's the way Jesus was too. Uh, I think what's, what's killing us is the gray areas that people are accepting as truth when we ought to be saying all over again, that's bad, that's good, that's light, that's dark, that's death, that's life, that's of God, that's not of God, hallelujah, come on. I mean, we're dying for that kind of preaching anymore. John is mentioned three times in the book of Acts during the early days of the church. After the famous Jerusalem conference of Acts 15, if you don't know what that's about, you can go read it. He disappears completely off the radar screen for, are you ready, 40 years. And he returns into the spotlight toward the end of the first century to deal with a rising tide of apostasy. Now, isn't it funny how Jude wrote about apostasy? Paul constantly dealt with apostasy. Um, uh, Peter wrote about apostasy. Matter of fact, most of the New Testament epistles on one level or another deal with apostasy. Even the book of Revelation deals with apostasy because there's always attacks against the truth. Always. I'm so glad that happened back then and not now. Right? I'm just so glad that happened back then. We don't have to deal with that anymore because everybody's a truth teller, right? Right? And, and, and the, the doctrine of God, the Bible, it's, it's safe. Because in America, that doesn't come under attack, right? No. You know that's crazy. As it was then, it is now. There's nothing new under the sun. It, the truth is always under attack. If it's truth, it's under attack. Amen? Now, tradition tells us that John lived into his old age. He's the only one of the 12 that were not martyred. He was not martyred. John wasn't martyred. He died somewhere after A.D. 98, so almost made it to the second century. He's thought to have died in Ephesus, from which he wrote this letter. 
Now, just to give you a little more background, he, he wrote the gospel according to John, not First John, but the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, that gospel of John. He wrote the gospel of John somewhere around A.D. 80 to 98. Now, I want you to notice he started writing late in life. He didn't write as a young man. He wrote as an uh, older man. God had him on hold till he got older. First, second, and third John, he wrote from A.D. 90 to 95, still old. And the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, he wrote from A.D. 94 to 98. So there you have about an 18-year time span where the Holy Ghost began to move on this, this beloved disciple, this beloved apostle, and gave him the Gospel of John, 1, 2, and 3 John, and the incredible book of Revelation. Wow. Say with me, that's being used in old age. So all of you that are older, hey, God's not done with you yet. Amen? As they say, just because there's snow on the rooftop doesn't mean there's not a fire in the chimney, right? Come on. Now, and I mean the fire of inspiration. All right. One other important detail is that John wrote. Now, this is key. Catch this. John wrote for the third generation of Christians from the passing of Jesus. Peter, Paul, James, and Jude all wrote for the first and second generation of believers. Generation tended to be about 40 years. So uh, all the apostles but John wrote to the first and second generations, 40 to 80 years beyond the passing of Jesus. But John lived long enough that he was able to address the third generation from the passing of Jesus due to his long life. And I personally believe God kept him alive for that very reason. And that's the way great moves of God tend to roll. Because let me tell you what happens with third generation. John passed over the first two generations and addressed the third generation that was an increasingly backslidden and increasingly apostate generation. The third generation was far enough along from the passing of Jesus and and the first two generations of Christianity, they were growing cold, cool, lukewarm. They were getting away from the truths of God, and they needed a revival. Now, what is a revival? A revival is not really, if, if you want to just get down to the meaning of the word, it's not for people to be saved. It's for People who used to be alive to be revived. Revival is to revive those that used to be zealous, fiery, passionate about God, but now they've gotten lukewarm, so they need to be revived. Amen? Now, and that's the way, listen, John, writing to the third generation that had begun to grow cool to God, Uh, You'll notice if you study church history, that's the way great moves of God tend to roll. Now, let me show you something. The first generation involved in a move of God is on fire and motivated by conviction. Everybody say conviction. Okay? That's the first generation involved in a move of God. Now, I have been involved in a move of God. I came to the things of the Lord. I came to Christ, and I got into the ministry, and, and I experienced incredible things in the Holy Spirit in the Jesus movement of the 70s and late 60s. Now, some of you weren't even around then, but let me tell you, it was a move of God that stretched from coast to coast. People would get saved walking down the sidewalk. 
I mean, whole denominations experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It was an incredible move of God. And those of us that were caught up in that move of God, let me tell you what, we had conviction. We, were, we had conviction about Jesus being the way, truth, and the life. We had conviction about the reality of the moving of the Holy Spirit. We had conviction about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We had conviction that Jesus had won and the devil had lost. We had conviction that the gospel brought salvation to everyone. We were convicted and convinced. Uh, we had conviction. Bible truths gripped our heart. And we lived, we breathed to tell the world about them. Even now in John's day, they did it even in threat of martyrdom. Many of them were martyred, but they didn't care. Because when you're in a move of God, when you're a first generation move of God, you'll give your life for the truth that has rocked your world and the Christ who has rocked your world. But then comes the second generation. That first generation begins to have children. The second generation inherits these truths from their parents and leaders, but the conviction that drove the first generation softens into a milder belief by the second generation. They believe the Bible truths that they have been taught, and they'll debate them, they'll defend them, and they'll spread them, but the fire and the passion are gone. You talk to the second generation, is Jesus Lord? Oh, yeah, he's Lord. Uh, uh, what about the Spirit of God? Oh, yeah, I believe in the Spirit of God. What about the Word of God? What about the Bible? Is it the Word of God? Oh, yeah, it's the Word of God. But you know what they don't do? They're not on fire and they're not zealous. They're more cerebral about it. And as far as being on fire in here, in their heart, they're not. They're lukewarm, but they're not fiery. I know a lot of uh, people who were in the Jesus movement who had children And their children did not pick up their fire. And it vexes them, perplexes them to this day. We need another move of God. But that's the second generation. They're still there with Jesus. They're still saved. But here comes the third generation. By the third generation, the generation that John wrote to, the belief melts into a simple opinion. The third generation have neither the fire of the first generation or the firmly held beliefs of the second generation. Unfortunately, they will dilute first-generation truth, which is biblical truth. They'll change it. They'll accept counterfeits. They'll even traffic in error. They say, well, you know, you got your opinion, and I've got mine. Let's just live together because there is no... how, How often have we heard this today? There is no absolute truth. Have you heard that these days? That's third generation talk. There's no absolute truth. There just isn't any. Uh, uh, first generation, oh, you better know there's absolute truth, truth that'll never die. The word of the Lord endures forever. Second generation, yes, I agree that there is absolute truth. Third generation, well, you know, I think it's a matter of opinion. And there's where you have dead churches and a great need for another move of God. Unfortunately, Third-generation believers will dilute first-generation truth. Uh, They need a revival. And it's the generation, this generation, the third generation that John wrote to. That's important when we read this letter. Now, one last thing. Three major heresies had gained traction with this third generation. Remember, they're not all about absolutes. Let's see what others have to offer. And, and, And so... Three heresies had found their way into 
this third generation of believers. One was the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. The denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. How many of you will say with me, Jesus was God in flesh? Raise your hand if you believe that. All right. This third generation of believers, we know because of what John said in his writings, and Paul and Peter and Jude as well, that they were denying the deity of Christ. He was just another created being. He was not very God wrapped in in a human body. Now, that was one heresy moving through this third generation of believers. A second heresy taught that he had not come in the flesh. He was some kind of phantom, but he had no physical body. God did not become a man. Now, I ask you again tonight, turning point, did God become a man in the person of Christ? Yes, you better know he did. And a third heresy taught against the two natures of Christ, the human and the divine. Now, you're often going to hear me say, you've heard me, no no doubt if you've been here long, you've heard me say this, Jesus was all man and all God and all God and all man. How many of you have heard me say that? All God and all man and all man and all God. He was the God man. Can we say together the God man? All right? Jesus was all man and all God and all God and all man. He had two natures, all God, all man, all man, all God. He was the God man. But the third generation had this heresy coming against them that that Jesus did not have these two natures, that he was not human and divine at the same time. Now, what we're about to see John do as the letter opens up is he's going to indignantly deny all three of these heresies. These heresies, church, are what was on his mind. And he fires the first shot in the first verse. So let's read 1 John 1, verse 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now catch what he's doing there. So much for the denial that Christ had a human body. So much for the teaching that he did not have a human body. If he didn't have a human body, how did they hear him? How did they see him? And how did they touch him? Now follow with me on this. Track with me here because this is really important. This was a false teaching attacking the early church. And it's out there today. You can bank on it. John had walked with him in person for over three years, and he knew better. We heard him. We saw him. We touched him. He was no phantom. He was real. He was a human being. He fully knew, John, that is, that Jesus was the eternal, uncreated, self-existing, word-made flesh. He was all God and all man. He was the God-man. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise tonight? See, if you do away with the truth that he became one of us, then how could he die for us? No. How could he die on a cross if he wasn't one of us? How could he die on a cross if he wasn't a human being? See, this heresy was designed to strip away the truth of Christianity. He had to be a human being, or how could you hang him on a tree? How could he shed his blood if he was not a human being? 
He was dual-natured, all man, all God. As a man, Jesus experienced weariness, hunger, thirst, joy, pain. What drove him to the woman at the well was he was thirsty. He sat down in the well. He needed a drink as a human being, as a man. Isaiah prophesied of our Lord Jesus that he would be well acquainted with grief. Well acquainted with grief. But as God, Jesus defied natural law to walk on water. He defied disease and infirmities to heal the impossibly sick. Cleanse lepers, open blind eyes, and deaf ears. And he defied the very grave itself to raise the dead. He was all God, but he was also all man. Amen? Say again with me, God-man, the God-man. So right there in verse 1, John is attacking these heresies. He's answering them. Now John goes on to describe Jesus in verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, manifested, made real to us. He was the life, says John, the eternal life. And that eternal life that Christ had enjoyed before coming to earth was manifested in his ability to raise the dead. He told Mary and Martha, what did he say to them? I preached on it Sunday. He said, I am the resurrection. And what, everybody? The life. That's what John's talking about. That's the life he's mentioning. The life was manifested. I am the resurrection and I am the life. What is the life? The eternal life. I give to those who believe on me eternal life. I resurrect from the dead and I give eternal life. I am the resurrection and the eternal life. Amen. And whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. How can he say that? Because he is the resurrection and the eternal life. And that eternal life, that life-giving ability that Jesus possessed was manifested in front of the disciples. And John said, we saw it, we bear witness to it, and we declare to you the eternal life that we saw with our own eyes. So John says, we declare to you as eyewitnesses that eternal life. Amen. Now in the next two verses, he reinforces his status as an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. As if to say to the false teachers, uh, you know what, guys? We were there and you weren't. You say he's not all God, all man, all man, all God. You say that he was just a phantom. You say that he was not very God-wrapped in flesh. Let me tell you what. We were there and you weren't. We saw it. We're eyewitnesses of his glory. He says in verse 3, the first half of it, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Again, John is saying, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We ate with him. We walked with him. We witnessed his miracles away with the thought that he was not here in human form. We saw it. Amen. Isn't it amazing to think that God Almighty, who has no beginning and no end, became a human being 
in the person of his son and walked among us, felt our pain, taught us straight from heaven, heavenly, spiritual, divine truth. But then that that God allowed wicked men who he created to beat him, abuse him, whip him, mock him, ridicule him, debase him, and finally nail him to a tree. Is that not amazing? Can we just lift our hands and thank the Lord for that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you did for us, Jesus. We're so moved. The disciples, Lord, they heard you, saw you, touched you. They were eyewitnesses of the eternal life and the resurrection power you possessed. And we thank you for this witness in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 And, and then he gives the purpose for his letter. He says in the second half of verse 3, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now here's something that you'll notice. When you read John's gospel, not First John, but the gospel of John, you'll see that he focuses on the life of God in Christ, that in him was life. But his epistle focuses on the life of God in us. He says, we have genuine fellowship with God. His life is in us. Do you know that the Shekinah glory that was in the Holy of Holies that dwelt between the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat above the ark, that presence is in you. Is that a mind blower or what? That presence, that Shekinah, that only the high priest got to see once a year when he went in there, that presence, the Shekinah glory, when Jesus died, that's why the the veil was ripped in half because God was now saying, I've made my presence now available to all men who turn to my son by faith. The presence that was shut away in the Holy of Holies is now gonna dwell in you. And that's what 1 John is telling us. Peter also wrote about this. He said, we have become partakers of the divine nature when we are born again. The eternal life that was inherent in Jesus Christ is now inherited in every Christian. And that inheritance brings us into fellowship with the Father and his Son. And we're going to see as we go through 1 John, John's all about fellowship. Fellowship with the Father, fellowship with one another, broken fellowship, healed fellowship, restored fellowship. And then he gives one last motive for his writing. He says, let me tell you why I'm writing this letter, that these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So everybody say with me, the good news is the glad news because it brings joy. See, the more we grow in the word, the greater our inner joy should be because the good news is also the glad news. It's not bad news, it's glad news. It's not sad news, it's glad news. Amen? It's good news. Now, after that opening salvo against the heresies that were attacking the early church in the third generation, John addresses two things in the rest of this chapter, our walk and our confession. Our walk and our confession. Now, let me tell you, he's going to meddle. Are you all ready to be meddled with? I said, are you ready to be meddled with? You ready for truth to meddle with you? Some of you, well, I'm not getting any kind of an amen at all. 
I said, are you ready for truth to meddle with your stuff a little bit tonight? Meddle with your stuff? John really is. I think Muhammad Ali used this uh, illustration. He said, he said, I float like a butterfly, but I sting like a bee. All right? John's that way. My little children love one another. And by the way, you're living in a lie. <laughs> he floats like a butterfly, but then zip, he stings like a bee. But it's a good sting. Amen? Now, we're going to see this. He begins verse 5 with telling us something wonderful about God. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, not a scintilla of darkness, no shred of darkness. There is no darkness in God at all. And I want you to notice who told him that. It was Jesus himself. He said, this is the message we have heard from capital H, him. So Jesus told the disciples, let me tell you about the Father. He is light, and in him there is not one shadow. There is no darkness at all. He's a piercing, shining, perfect, brilliant, emanating light. James said the same thing. Whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God, the creator of all what, everybody? All light. And what does God do? He shines forever without change or shadow. He doesn't ever change. Not only is he all light with no dark, but God never changes. The, the God that was around three trillion years ago is the same God today. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that. I don't like a God that's going to wake up one day and say, you know what, I've changed my mind on a few things. Oh, no, no, I don't like that at all. I love that he is stable and he never changes. Amen? He shines forever without one change or one shadow. So darkness can't cohabit with light. Now, here's where John is going. Darkness never drives out light. Light always drives out darkness, always. Darkness never chases light. The first thing God did in creation, have you ever thought about it, was he commanded the light to shine out of darkness. The first act of creation was God commanding light to shine out of darkness. The very first thing God created was light. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and he said, it is good. So the first thing God, when he began creation, he says, we, what we need first above all else, we need light. Now, don't you think that's true for us today? Don't we need every single day in this dark world, first thing we need is light? Come on. If God made light first thing, right there at the dawn of creation, if light was his first creation, then don't you think that every day he says, you better get some light on your soul. Open up the Bible for the, the entrance of your word, David said in Psalms 119, brings light and it gives understanding to the simple. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Let there be light, and there was light. Now, with that in mind, John launches into a thrice-repeated, three-times-repeated phrase, if we say. Can we say that together? If we say. He's going to use that three times in this chapter. If we say. Now, the first if we say is found in verse 6. Look what he says. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Why? Because God is light. How can you say you walk with the light 
and you're walking in dark. So if we say that we have fellowship with him, oh, yeah, I have fellowship with the Lord. Oh, oh yeah, I walk with him. Oh, I'm a Christian. You better believe I'm a Christian. You bet. It's like in Dallas, everybody's a Dallas cowboy. Well, used to be. But you know what I'm saying. Everybody's a Christian in America. Do you believe in Christ? Oh, yeah, I believe in Christ. But see, here's the deal. Are you walking in light? Now, he's going to deal with our walk, not our talk, but our walk. So here we find John's teaching is filled with absolutes. So here he goes. There's no gray area. There's no twilight zone with him. If we say we're walking with God, that we have been born again, that we are his child, but we're walking around in moral and spiritual darkness, we're living a lie. Isn't that what he said? If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in the dark, we lie. There's that sting. Float like a butterfly, sting, we lie. And do not practice the truth. Paul the apostle said to the Corinthians, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, this needs to be said at the very opening of 1 John. When he says things like this, he's not talking about sinless perfection, meaning that God expects us to never make a mistake, that we, we should be more or less perfect. Where Jesus said, for instance, be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He didn't mean without a mistake. He didn't mean perfect in that way. He meant mature. He meant grown up. He meant think like God, have the mind of God, think God thoughts. But he wasn't talking about perfect. So he's not here saying we have to walk in sinless perfection, and that's the only way that we have fellowship with him. Uh, What he is saying is he's talking about a lifestyle our lifestyle. We either have a lifestyle that is sensitive to God, seeking to please God, that when we do make a mistake and do slip up and do sin, that we immediately repent, quickly repent, keep short accounts with God, and maintain our fellowship with him. A true child of God cares more about the fellowship, the vertical fellowship with God than anything else. And so if something comes between us and God, he's saying, he's saying, get it right and get it right quickly because it'll break your fellowship if you, if you don't. If you say you have fellowship with him, but you're not even bothering to walk in the light, you're playing church, you go to church and, and you may even sing some of the songs and know a lot of the people, but, but, but you're not really seeking the Lord, not really uh, caring about what he thinks. You're living in the flesh, walking in the flesh. You look like the world, walk like the world, think like the world, talk like the world. We can't tell the difference between you and the world. When you do something that would convict a believer, it doesn't convict you. He's saying, look, he's saying, let me help you here. If you say that you have fellowship with him, but you're walking around in darkness, then you're living a lie. Listen, can I say something boldly tonight? Real salvation shows. You're not perfect. You got all kinds of flaws. Let me tell you, I'm a very flawed man. I wish I weren't, but I'm a very flawed man. I've got all kinds of flaws, mistakes, you know, shortcomings. I I wish that I was better in several areas of my life. But let me tell you, I, I am sincere in that I want to please the Lord in my life. 
I'm sincere. And, and when I know something is between me and him, I can't eat good. I can't sleep good. No, no, I lose my peace. I got to get it right and, and, and restore that fellowship. When you're a real child of God, if you sin, you haven't lost your salvation. You've lost fellowship. And the real child of God will care about getting that fellowship back. That's what he's saying. But, it, but if you're walking around in darkness, don't say you've got fellowship with him. How can you say you've got fellowship with, with him, that you really know him, if you're living a, a sinful lifestyle? Your, your life is worldly and, and ungodly and unbiblical. You can't say it. Now, that stings, but he's doing us a real favor. I can't tell you, church, as a pastor, I've been a pastor 35 years, and I'm going to tell you, it's not the same church now as it was when I first started preaching. Because now in the church, you often run across people who will say, oh, yeah, I know the Lord. Oh, yeah, hallelujah, praise God, kumbaya, and all that good stuff. But then you find that their lifestyle, they're living in the, in, in the flesh, they're living in sin, they're, they're not practicing Christianity, they're not really walking it, and you go, what's this about? There's this dichotomy. What you say and what you live are two different things. And this is where John's going. Amen, Pastor Jeff, preach it. I'm sure enjoying this. But, but, but you know what, though? It's killing the church. It's killing the church. Because a lot of people out there in the world, they see professing Christians living just like them. And they go, what? what? I don't what, come to Jesus? What? It didn't make any difference in your life. You live just like me. No, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a called out people that you should show forth, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous what? Light. So there's no way we can claim to be in fellowship with Jesus if our lifestyle is one of practicing sin, uh, if we look at it just like the world, we can't say that we're really walking with him. And then in verse 7, John gives two huge advantages to walking in the light. How many of you know, want to know about walking in the light? Come on, how many of you desire to walk in the light and to please the Lord? All right. He says, but if you're one of those who do walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's the first advantage. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, actively, ongoingly cleanses us from all sin. Now, let me tell you what it means to walk in the light. To walk in the light means you harbor nothing shady. Nothing you would not want to be seen and known. Again, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. On the way here, I'm going to be transparent with you. On the way here, you know, the, the traffic was bad, a wreck or something had happened. And, and, and see, I wanted to get here in time to eat, I'm going to tell you, a chicken pot pie. I, I was thinking of the chicken pot pie. I was wired and, 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 and honed in on, I, I, was all, I was salivating. I was thinking, I love chicken pot pies. And I look, and all of a sudden the traffic stops, and my little GPS says that I'm not going to get here until like 6.42. Well, I can't have my pie then. That did not go over well with my flesh at all. Matter of fact, I didn't feel real Christ-like right about then. And so I'm trying to weave through traffic, and, and this person pulled right in front of me. I mean, just almost cut me off. 
Now, I wish I could tell you that I said, oh, hallelujah, glory to God. But I didn't. And I was listening to the radio to me. And do you know what I said on the radio? If you're walking in the spirit, you won't be bothered with road rage. I said it right then. Right then. And I said, oh, Pastor Jeff. I said, Cindy, find another station. (laughs) I'm serious. It really did. It said, don't be bothered. Right then. Right then. So I thought, oh, yes, yes, Lord, I repent. I repent. But now, here's the deal. I confessed it. You know, I wasn't feeling real spiritual. Um, I do now, though. I feel real spiritual right now up here teaching the Word. But here's the deal. Um, Walking in the light, it's not about being perfect, but it's about keeping short accounts with God. It's about being honest and transparent before Him and other people. It's about no secrets. You know, the devil loves secrets. He moves in the realm of secrets. No secret works of darkness that we embrace or cling to. We, we bring them to the light. And we say, Father, even if you fall in something over and over again, you don't stay there. You say, Lord, forgive me. I got to keep my fellowship with you. So I'm asking you to forgive me, Lord. That's walking in the light. That's walking in the light. Keep short accounts with God. Uh, don't give sin any longer than a, than a few minutes shelf life. I've noticed through my years as a pastor, well, John tells us here, he says, if we walk honestly and transparently before God, confessing sins when need be, then we will have fellowship with one another. That's the first advantage to walking in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So walking in the light vertically causes us to have fellowship horizontally. It opens the door for fellowship. Now, as a pastor of many years, I've noticed that one of the first things a backslider in heart does is they separate from fellowship. All of a sudden, you realize they're not in church, and you go, where's so-and-so? Where'd they go? Oh, they're out there. Somebody told me they're taking a sabbatical. Well, I've learned that sabbatical is a code word for I've decided to get out for a while, or, and either there's some sin or I'm dealing with an offense and I'm not forgiven, and, and so we get out. Uh, but I've noticed they can't handle walking with somebody who's walking in the light. So the first thing they do when they get out of the light is they start running with people who are also out of the light. Because you don't want to hang around with people that are walking in the light if you're walking in the dark because they're going to convict you all the time, bug you all the time, irritate you all the time. So you're going to run with people who don't care what you do because they do the same things you want to do. So they pull away from church. They pull away from Christian friends. And and their life begins to go in in a downward spiral. So first, if you're going to walk in the light, it assures that you're going to be fine with fellowship. That fellowship is going to be a part of your life. I love being around the children of God. I love the people of God. I'm closer to a lot of the church than I am um, people in my family who don't walk with God. I love them, but there's something that comes right there 
between us. See, I can't talk to them about what thrills my soul, Jesus and the word of God and prayer. And they, they don't understand. And I love them. I really do love them. They're my, they're my flesh and blood kin and, and siblings and, and whatnot. But, but I can talk to a believer way better and have fellowship. Now, the second great advantage to walking in the light is the blood of Jesus ongoingly cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the dark, our sin separates us from fellowship with the the Lord. And so the only recourse for the true child of God is to repent. Can you say the word repent with me? Repent. Repent. That just means agree with God. I admit it. I did wrong. I, I was wrong, Lord. Forgive me. And when we repent, we get back into the light. As soon as you repent, the light starts shining on your soul again. As soon as you repent, and he says, forgiven, then, ah, I have peace with God. I'm back in fellowship. All is well. The blood of Jesus, only the blood of Jesus cleanses us from not some sin, but John says, all sin. His blood washes our sin completely away. Are you thankful for the blood of the lamb? All right. That's, that's the advantage. So say with me, fellowship and forgiveness are the advantages to walking in the light. Now, he comes to the next if we say, the second if we say, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we live in a culture, I don't know if you've noticed or not, that increasingly rejects the whole notion of sin at all. We often hear people say, what do I have to repent of? What do you mean sin? But John says, if you say, I don't have any sin, you're deceiving your own soul. It reminds me of the Proverbs. Uh, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. That's this generation that we're in right now. It's pure in its own eyes, but it's not washed from its own filthiness. The Bible says, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy and you'll walk in the light and not in the dark. And this is John's message in the next verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. Now, in closing, John returns to those who insist they have not sinned. And he uses the phrase, if we say, a third and last time. Here's his third if we say. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is nowhere in us. Now, folks, there are churches all over America now and all over the Western world that don't, no longer preach about sin, won't talk about it. Uh, it. It's off the table because it's not politically correct to talk about sin because it, after all, it might offend somebody. Well, you know what? Jesus offended me, and that's what got me saved. Now, here's the deal. We need to be real clear that the human race is in sin. I am in sin. Well, I'm washed of my sin, but I still am inclined towards it. My flesh is still around. I still make mistakes, say things, think things, do things that I shouldn't have to say, Jesus, forgive me, right? But but, uh, apart from Christ, you are absolutely lost in your sin. God has repeatedly testified in his word that all humanity has sinned. And what could be more wicked than calling God a liar? When you say, I have no sin, 
you've just called God a liar because God has testified that you do have sin. How many of you can say tonight, I'm saved, but I still mess up? How about, I'm saved, but I have sinned since the first of the year? Well, the rest of you just lied and sinned right here, right now. Now, we've got to get to where we can't lose this message. What is our message to this culture? Repent and be saved. Repent, you're in sin. In Romans 1 to 3, the Holy Spirit thoroughly exposes the sinfulness of the human race. It says, all have sinned. How many? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, let me just read to you a little bit more and then we're done. Again, it says in Romans 3, listen to this. No one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. No one has ever really followed God's paths or even truly wanted to. Everyone has turned away. All have gone wrong. No one anywhere has kept on doing what is right, not one. Listen to those. No one, no one, no one, everyone, all, no one, not one. I think God means everybody has sinned. Now listen to verse 13. Talk about the lost, those outside of Christ. Their talk is foul and filthy, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are loaded with lies. Everything they say has in it the sting and poison of deadly snakes. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Now I ask you, does that not describe our culture right now? To a T. And doesn't it describe the way you and me were before we were saved? Didn't we have foul and filthy speech? Didn't we lie? Come on, everybody. Didn't what we say gossip about people, slander people, run other people down, murder with our words? Didn't we have the sting and poison of snakes on our lips? Aren't you glad God saved you and sanctified you and filled you with the Holy Spirit? So when we say we have no sin, we reveal his word is not in us. So in closing, the first great work of the Holy Spirit in our life is to convict of sin. Jesus said, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. He will convict us of the nature of sin, the need for righteousness, and the nearness and certainty of coming judgment. So thank God for the light. Amen? Can we stand together tonight? Thank you, Jesus. How many of you can say that was good stuff even though it stung a little bit? Come on. Amen. Well, you can do better than that. Come on, everybody. Amen. Amen. The word of the Lord is so good. Let's lift our hands to Jesus. Let's just thank him for the blood that has washed us and cleansed us. And let's thank him for the light. If you want to walk in the light, pray with me right now and say with me, Lord Jesus, your light You are pure light. I want to walk in that light. Help me to keep short accounts with God. And keep the channels between me and God clear. Thank you, Lord, for washing my sin away. And for fellowship with you and with the brethren. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing.